way we are living making us sick? Is there a way for us to live that honors our ancestral ecology and allows us to follow our longing and our belonging as a meaningful part of the earth community? These are only some of the beautiful questions that Dr. Von Wilkins and I explore in this conversation. Von Wilkins has spent the last 20 years researching the impacts of the loss of ecological participation across species lines in both humans and non-human animals. Specifically, how physical and psychological captivity impact health and wellness at both the personal and planetary levels, from the zoocosis of animals held in captivity to the collective trauma of modern techno-industrial society. He holds an MA degree in the psychology of animal behavior from Hunter College and a PhD in eco-psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies. He currently lives in Montreal, Quebec, building community with those looking to unlock the cage, reconnect with their senses, and once again, become mutually beneficent members of the Earth community. I'm so excited to share this conversation with all of you. And first, I wanted to let you know that I've just opened up enrollment for the 2024 Apprenticeship Cohort. This is a 10-month certificate program in depth practices. We explore practices like dream tending, active imagination and imaginal ways of knowing, somatic awareness, deep soul listening, the art of asking questions, working with myth and engaging with mythic figures, storytelling, ritual making, working with archetypes and archetypal symbols, and even engaging in practices of eco-psychology, which we'll talk about in this next conversation you're about to hear. So many of us are ready to remember ourselves back to ways of being and knowing that invite us into the fullness of our belonging, of our wildness, and of our nature. And these are some of the ways and practices that I have found very helpful and powerful in this longing and on this quest. So if you're interested in these, not only for your personal life, but also in bringing them to the work that you do, whether you're a therapist, a coach, an artist, a parent, a teacher. Um, the next step would be to go to the show notes and click on schedule a call with me and we can explore and talk about whether this would be a good fit for you. Okay, on to the conversation with Dr. Von Wilkins. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for being here on Belonging to the Wild. I'm really grateful. I'm really happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I was so drawn to your work when I ran into it online because I think so much of the things that you write about and have researched are so resonant with, with uh, the conversations we have here on this podcast. And um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your research um, around enculturated captivity and zoocosis. And we'll get to that. But for now, I wanted to start with this question. It seems like your research began and centers around this question of, is the way we're living making us sick? And is that right? Is that a central question? I would say that's definitely a central question yeah. to the work, for sure. Yeah. I was wondering if you could start by telling us what you think sparked that curiosity or that question 
um, what you were seeing or sensing that made you even be aware of that question that was coming up for you as you mm. yeah 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 happy to uh you know i think i think it was like a feeling i think growing up there was like an offness i, I don't know that i could say uh -huh. it differently there was an offness of like really this is it or i just i felt less compelled to the i don't know traditional ideas of success or just what it seemed every the game everyone else seemed like they were playing and I think as a child, when you try to language that, or when I tried to language that out into the world, I, I felt like I got identified as just like a, a malcontent or something. Um, like if you're in a, I don't know, let's say you're in a, a challenging family and you get scapegoated, it's likely that you're the truth teller and you were seeing something and trying to name it. And maybe you were, you know, rocking the boat too much. So I, I think for me, it was started with this offness, this feeling. Then I found a really cool book that, that shook me up. Then I found um, something while I was researching zoo animals that I didn't expect to find. And then I found eco-psychology. So, uh, well, I'll tell you the book, the book was called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. I don't know if you've, uh -huh. ever, if you've ever read Ishmael, but it's, I mean, careful. I think it's, I think it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. I, the world wasn't the same after I read it. One of those perspective shattering um, books. It just, just gave me enough of a, you know what? I was right. It's not that there's something wrong with me. There's something about this whole thing that was built that just, it wasn't built to do what we think it's doing. This thing that we built that's like this thriving human society of this techno-industrial thing is actually, you know, a crashing ship that's leading towards extinction. <laughs> and for me, I was just like, wow, I'm super, I'm into that story. How do I figure that out? You know, okay. the idea that it wasn't me that was having the issues. It was me um, calling it out, like truthfully, that there's something wrong with all this. And now I had a book that just, well, somebody else sees it too. Yeah. Um, so I ended up, I ended up uh, researching zoo animals and trying to figure out if there was some model of cooperation that I could find in, in zoos to bring back to humans, right? Because we were watching the world fall apart, right? We're racing towards extinction. Yeah. We're yeah. ecosystems cascading out of control. We're, you know, literally innumerable species are going extinct because of our actions, mm -hmm. and we're still doing it. That's <laughs> so, right. You know, how do we get us like together? And you know, in the zoos, I ended up finding out that I found something really different of what captivity does to a being once. Once a being is separated from that ancestral ecology, from those connections, um, that dance, that birthed it, that really um, made it whole. You know, we, we have our bodies, we have our minds, we have our psyche and our emotions, you know, through our connection and evolution with that which wasn't human. Mm -hmm. and, and now we spend almost all of our time exclusively surrounded by human-made things, with other humans playing with human symbols, and in all other animals, and humans are animals, when you take them out of that first context of their evolution and stick them in a box, a bunch of really um, not great things, a lot of weird symptoms start emerging. Yeah. So that, that's kind of like where I started looking and then found eco-psychology and they really just had that question of there's something sick about the way we're living, really trying to look at... Um, really trying to look at society as if you, a psychologist would look at a patient 
and instead of identifying people as having their own personal pathology, starting to look at this whole and like, hey, what are these agreements that we've made? What are these norms that we've agreed upon? And started trying to name this cultural sickness, this cultural pathology that um, they were seeing. So for me, I kind of put those three things together and I was off to the races. Wonderful. Yeah. So it sounds like for you, you've seen this since you were a child, this what you called offness, this sense that it's just not quite right. And you started naming it even as a child. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's like, like I can still say it was it was just an offness. And I, I taught high school for a bunch of years and worked with younger kids outside. And I, it's still there. I still I still yeah. I meet people almost every day or hear from someone on the Internet. It's like, thank you for giving words to the offness that I couldn't describe. So I, I don't think it's me or there's something unique about me. I just think I ended up in like the right set of circumstances to start giving language to something that mm-hmm. I think. I think so many of us are feeling there's just something not That's right. quite right. There's something more. There's there's like a deeper connection to ourselves and to the rest of the world that we're longing for, and it's and it's actually our inheritance, right? It's, it's actually yeah. the place where we belong. Beautiful, yeah, yeah. It's we're so used to like you you said so beautifully saying we're the problem especially if we're told that from when we're children, when we're young. And in our culture, that's so emphasized that that just it, at best look inward, do your, do your work, quote unquote. And, and, you know, if you're afraid, then work on that fear. Well, sometimes we're afraid because the thing we're looking at is terrifying and is actually a, a very sane and healthy response to be very afraid. Right. And and that that idea that we're afraid because of what we're seeing. And there's this quote from your website, let me or from your writing by living in a way that is anti-ecological and hurting us, but then naming it sanity. We validate and condone it and then teach it to our kids. It becomes a secret cage that prevents us from living as functioning members of the Earth community. Yeah, I I think. I think it, uh, first I'll just say, I think it's really hard to be sane in an insane group, right? Or yeah. an insane culture or an insane society. And it's really hard to be healthy in a, in a sick group or a sick society. Yeah. Like it's what we consensually validate, reward, agree upon um, becomes the standard. And, you know, Eric Fromm's got this great quote that um, just because millions of people, um, say something is correct doesn't doesn't make it not false and just because millions of people have the same pathology and name insanity doesn't actually make it sane so i i think for us we've we've got some norms and some agreed upon things that are really clearly (laughs) leading towards our extinction that we we're just continuing to perpetuate and and keep going and you know eco psychology started as a reframe Mm-hmm. of what sanity was and psychology was and yeah. they're really the ones that I would say were first stopped looking at what we were identifying from a normative sense as um, as insane or, or uh, maladaptive or pathological and started looking at what we were calling normal Yeah, and looking at that from the perspective of okay, is that actually like what are we calling normal here and, and you'll see people over over time shifts like we think about you know um, civil rights, women's lib, 
like the entire um, gender evolution happening right now with just what was considered normal and taught and kind of um, indoctrinated is is disrupted. And to name like the way things were, the status quos that were oppressing people as like healthy, I, I think we can look back now and say, oh, none of those things were healthy. How is that even happening? Yeah. And we've got a larger ecological one. I say larger because it's species extinction and yeah. it's for all of us. But I think there's, yeah, this agreed upon consensually validated form of essentially trauma that we're yeah. naming as sanity. And we ask our kids to agree to it. And it doesn't really give them a shot to imagine something else, something new. Yeah. Could you give us some examples of right now what you, you use the term invisible bars in your work um, yeah. that you see now? I mean, you've named the way we're facing this um, ecological crisis or extinction. But are there, are there other norms that you see us agreeing to that are making us sick that we're just saying is normal? Yeah, I mean, I, we can, I think... Well, let me let me drop it back into into zoos real quick if I could, and yeah. then I think this might be a fun thought experiment for anyone listening to play and without me just um, listing things but uh, listing things out. But if you so so in zoos, you take any any being um, across species, anything that's in captivity, and you take it out of its ecology, and it develops these abnormal, repetitive, self harming mm -hmm. behaviors, right? Which um, colloquially end up being called zoocosis. Uh -huh. And the way that, you know, zoos try to combat this is they create these enrichment therapies, right? So these are essentially ways to bring back some part of the, um, the animal's ecology back into the cage, right? So it's, you might think about an animal that forages for food and giving it a puzzle feeder or hiding, hiding the food around the enclosure or an animal that's like a predator. Um, there's one with the cheetah that I've seen, they put the, they put its food on a, put their food on a pulley and have it chase it around. So it gets to feel like it's, it's hunting is the idea. Um, or you build a, a pool, a lake, you give a polar bear some ice. I think the idea is you've got these abnormal repetitive self-harming behaviors like banging, and you'll see an animal banging its head against the wall, pulling their own fur or feathers out. Um, eating their own feces and then throwing it up and then eating it again. Um, aggression mm -hmm. towards themselves or others. And primates, interestingly enough, chronic masturbation is one of the things. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's <laughs> that just kind of like, I'm just imagining lines up with the, the modern world in an interesting way. But so you've got what's happening inside mm -hmm. a captive system is maybe a healthy behavior in some cases, but largely it's these abnormal, repetitive, self-harming behaviors or you've got enrichment activities. And I think if we look at the world, you can look at which of the things that I'm seeing every day yeah. that are, I might call abnormal, repetitive, self-harming behaviors in the context of, you know, what was our actual natural behavioral ecology, right? So if the way we, we set these up, if you look, you look at an animal and it's natural or, or wild, right? Um, habitat, and then What's it doing differently in, in the enclosure? And for us, I, I guess you kind of go back to, okay, hunter-gatherer, scavenger, horticulturist, 
you know, small groups, knowing everyone you're around, immersed in nature, really in contact with our bodies, the present moment, our senses. Okay. How many of us are doing those things Mm -hmm. every day? What are we engaged in? So it almost becomes like, what is not an abnormal, repetitive, self-harming behavior in our culture? Mm -hmm. And what is not an enrichment behavior, right? If you saw a polar bear on a treadmill, yeah, I think you'd be like, that's kind of weird. Yeah. You see a human on a treadmill and you're like, that's not weird. That's just Tuesday. That's right. So I, I think, I think it's a lot more benign and subtle. So I think that's almost a better way to look at what are the things that we're engaged in. And if we look at it through this lens of, um, captivity, so much of it, our, our consumptions, our, our addictions, our media usage. Um, have you ever seen those images where they, it's like a photo and you, they just delete all the, the, the cell phones out of them and everyone's just standing there staring at their um, hands? No, I haven't seen that. Um, or if you, you yeah. or just think about um, photos of someone in the living room and you just take away the TV, right? You take away the video games and it's just, they're just standing there staring at the wall for mm-hmm. hours. And, and then you look at an animal in a cage, um, a non-human animal. Well, I guess we're all animals in cages. That's right. And not all cages are physical. So I think when we That's come down right. to the bars, like some of our bars are actually psychological, right? They're, yeah. the idea that we can't do something different than this. Like it's, it's really hard to not be complicit in the business as usual model yeah. of, of the world. Yeah. I'm so struck by this enrichment therapy idea. It's first of all, so tragic. It's, it's quite heartbreaking to imagine uh, all the things that and and probably most of us have seen some of that at zoos or in as we've watched other captive animals this idea of, of of enrichment therapy even the name of it is so tragic because actually it's a it's a tool for obedience a tool for compliance a tool for numbing and to bring that into our lives and this is such a powerful question for us to ask ourselves, what, what am I doing that's an enrichment therapy, you know, that isn't actually setting me free, that's actually making me feel maybe a little bit better or maybe a little bit less bad or a bit a little bit numb, a little bit like I'm doing something, but it's actually just colluding toward my um, captivity. And, you know, I think a lot of wellness culture and therapeutic culture and, uh, in other words, that we should be really brave and look at the things that we consider really quote unquote healthy and good for us that might actually be an enrichment therapy. It's such a it's a really powerful uh, question that you've asked us. Yeah, I, I think you're so on it right there. Like that's 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 so huge and and ecotherapy I think is one of the most subtle kind of. Um, can do can do the most subtle damage in that right because it's uh, it, it lines up so clearly like eco like what the the, um, the theories that create enrichment therapy are so similar to some of the original eco psychological theories right we're built to live in this one context we've lost the context and then uh, enrichment uh, therapies almost line up directly uh, with eco therapies right we're, we're still trying to treat the um 
the symptoms that emerge from this contextual mismatch from what we were designed to live as and now what we're living as by introducing aspects of our ancestral ecology back to us. And you're right, so much of, of wellness culture can do that. And if there isn't this idea of freedom, liberate, liberation, reintroduction into, I don't know, for the, for the moment, we'll say like this mythical wild, then it all just becomes like increasing, like, like making it easier for us to stay in yeah. captivity, yeah. to stay in the cage. And you have, a, there, there are activists that will protest, um, enrichment programs and some of these enrichment designers will come under, um, mm. come under threat from animal rights groups because they're actually making it easier for them to stay in captivity, yeah. right? By, by reducing suffering, it creates this, um, argument where, or it justifies the argument of the, the suffering of the few for the good of the many type mm. thing and mm. all the beneficent reasons I'm, I'm doing air quotes here for zoos to exist like with uh, breeding programs conservation education and then okay we can't justify those if things are suffering but if the animals and zoos are no longer suffering because they've got their games yeah right they've got their toys they've got their mates and unfortunately most of them are on pharmaceuticals too that's something that i don't think most of the world even knows about but yeah mood stabilizers antidepressants, tranquilizers, almost every animal you see in a zoo is on some, is on something, right? Why? Because they're beings with an analogous neural structure to, to humans. And when you stick a human in captivity, they're, they're not going to be okay. Yeah. So yeah, I, I love that you're identifying that piece of some of the things we do to try to uh, enrich, enlighten, transcend, transform our lives end up becoming the things that um, make turn us into weekend warriors with no reason mm. to actually escape oh yeah yeah so we can ask this question <laughs> what is helping me stay in my cage right and like you said for us it's a lot of it is psycho psychological spiritual uh, emotional that is, you, uh, many of us aren't in physical cages and yet we experience the symptoms of captivity. Well, that's a really wonderful place to put our curiosity because then we can ask, yeah, what's keeping me in my cage? And, you know, as I understand it, it can be the stories we tell ourselves, the beliefs that we have, the lifestyle that we, that we um, agree to that we consider unquestionable. That's just how it is, right? So much of the status quo, you mentioned our consumption, the way that we, I would add, the, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, all of it, I could, I'm looking at it and seeing so many bars be, that, that are bars of obedience to, to bring that into the conversation we usually have here. I'm obeying something that's actually keeping me captive. And what am I doing that I think is really good for me that's actually keeping me here, right? And, you know, I think even something as simple as all the stress management tools we have in modern culture. And what about saying, well, the way we're living is stressful and unnatural and maybe the stress management is just keeping me in this lifestyle, right? Just to bring it to another example. Yeah. One big you one that it, yeah. one big one that I see is 
the pace of life. Um, and, and, and again, I think a lot of this isn't right. Us being malicious or, or not wanting to be free. It's just, we're in a sick culture. So we need these moments of transgression of seeing through. And, you know, I think the pace of life, this is, this is, uh, something I hear that I think this doesn't seem sane. And it's this, this narrative of, I'm too busy to get out into nature. I'm too busy to tend to my relationships. I'm too busy to do what I love. I'm too busy to have a, a meaningful reflection or whatever that looks like to a particular person. Um, and I'm just always so tired. And I just think, well, then what are we doing <laughs> with, with yeah. every day? What is this agreement we've made that every minute of your day is um, taken? And yet none of it seems to be the thing that brings you joy and rest and nourishment. That doesn't seem, that seems, to, to go back to your original word, that seems off to me. And this isn't, yeah. uh, this isn't from a judgmental perspective. It's from being in this culture and seeing this and experiencing this story as one example of maybe what you're, this captivity that we're in. For sure. Yeah, I think grand culture is huge, especially for folks trying to do, even even folks trying to like make the shift who, who have seen a piece of it or are trying to do activism work or like, like the, the some of the most, or, or teachers trying to like help children, like the most, like some of the most beneficent roles are the most hard grinding. Mm. And often it becomes like, well, what's our motivation? What's our agreement? What's our story? What's our metric that we're racing towards? I, I found one that I think is really fun is like, like how much can I do in a day um, without fatiguing myself? How much can I do in a day without leaving like my emotional center? How, how much can I do in a day without um, overwhelming myself? How much can I do in a day without needing to use a coping mechanism or strategy? Mm -hmm. And you know what? It's very little. Yeah. <laughs> it's very little. And I'm using a metric of a, no, you need to output this much work or... Um, any teachers listening, you know, the, the agreement is teachers do more. It's like, oh, we mm -hmm. don't have enough money. Well, teachers will do more. Yeah. Oh, we, but this happened. Well, teachers will do more. And and whatever that is, it's, if the metric instead becomes, how do I stay connected to my body and to myself and not push myself outside of um, where my, I don't know, peace circle <laughs> lives. Mm -hmm. I think, I think that's a great way to, to get out of the grind and I think there might be some other ones for how do I really connect more deeply with my body's ancestry as a human? How do I, if I want to take it on, how do I start to move towards this idea of um, not being captive? Like, how do we even build something? Yeah. Something else when we're all complicit in this. And so much of what all this is, is the water we're swimming in. It's, it's hard to explain water to a fish. Right, they've never known anything else. So the idea that anyone should feel bad for not, um, not sensing this or seeing this or being identified by this or being bamboozled by culture and all its trappings, I, I feel like isn't isn't accurate. We're all we're all bamboozling ourselves every day. I think a little bit. It makes me think of um, fun like cultural fundamentalism in the sense that any kind of fundamentalist ideology, whether it's about religion or capitalism or whatever it is, 
it, part of that ideology is that this is the only way. And that if you if you jump out of this water, you'll you'll have nothing. You'll be dead. You'll have no belonging. You'll have nothing. And so there is, you know, I, I as I consider these invisible bars, and that there are a lot of people saying, actually, my, it doesn't make sense. I don't want to do this anymore. But I don't know what else to do. There's nowhere else to go. And as if culture were the most real real reality and in fact one of the things I love about eco-psychology and all of that work is to say actually let's remember that here being on the earth in our bodies is the most real life we can have and culture and all the things we set up aren't actually as real um, in other words we there there's a reality beyond these the status quo in other words Absolutely. Yeah. What is it like to be a, are, like, are we humans if we're humans without an ecology? Yeah. Right. When you, I, I think for me, one of the strange things with studying captive animals is in, in many ways when they lose their behavioral ecology and, and then generationally are raised within captivity and have like, in some ways just lost that, that original culture or like that, that um, connection with what they were birthed from. It's like at a point, they become almost like genetic sacks just being used to, to breed. And I, I think so much for us, like being a mutually enhancing member of the earth community, like I think is, is such a cool map backward, like back to remembering, like right? that re-membering, yeah. right? Becoming again member of, of something. Um, so I, I think any, any, any moment we can move towards becoming more member or having more of an ecology, I think our health really lies in our ecology. Yeah. And to, I don't know, you use nature or use animal assisted therapy or, or use any of the wellness techniques to gain like personal, what we might call personal health, but then remain inside the unhealthy system, the traumatogenic system that generates trauma, the pathogenic system that generates sickness. Um, self like self the selfish idea of i can be healthy and leave everyone else to not be i don't think it works i think we've we've kind of got to do it together um yeah and i don't think there's a way to bail on this whole thing by yourself like you, yeah. i don't think there's a way to run away to the woods and um i don't know do it without the rest of us yeah i think we're in it together yeah i mean i definitely in what you're saying i hear that that the privilege privilege culture to like I can just save myself and in fact it doesn't even work anyway so yeah what are some of the ways that that you you said you mentioned that we can remember ourselves to our ecology well maybe to back up a little bit you use this term ancestral ecology um and that's so beautiful can you Tell us a little bit what you mean by that, and in particular, what you mean about that we need our ecology now as humans yeah, sure, now. Sure. Um, well, I think all, all beings. So, say, I mean, I've, I've studied mostly animals, but I'm going to say it for all beings, including trees and plant life. Like, we all come into our existence through this co evolutionary dance, right? Like a puzzle piece in a system. Right? I have these fingers and my thumbs right? because they fit a niche in the world. I didn't just get them by myself. I, they were in response 
yeah. my world my world gave me these I, I became I came from the world the world wasn't there for me right an elephant has its trunk because the world gave it to it right and mm -hmm. the same thing not just for our body morphology the way our bodies look but also the way our minds function the way our emotions function the way our, our neurochemistry and structures are all set up we're all in a response to this world and for us our ancestral ecology I, I, I think I think I'll get this right I'm not sure who I can quote on this but it was the idea of the, the history of like human time on this earth if it was laid out at the scale of the um, the Empire State Building right a tall building a little pole on the top and a little ball some gold paint like modern techno-industrial society is the paint on the top of that ball mm -hmm. the rest of it is us living immersed in nature being shaped um, being willing to be part of the push and pull, right? Being, being something else's food, right? Yeah. Um, being <laughs> told um, how many of us can live through a season, right? Like we, we're, we were built to exist as part of this world. And at some point we decided that we could do it better and we could make up our own rules, name them laws. They're not really laws, they're just rules. Um, you know, if a plane doesn't fly by breaking the law of aerodynamics, right? It flies by moving with the yeah. law of aerodynamics. Yeah. Um, jaywalking isn't a law. I can totally break that one. It's just a rule. Yeah. So for us, at some point, we just decided we came up with better rules and we, we bailed as being a member of this earth. And the thing is, we've used our creativity, our ingenuity, our abstract minds. We've just created so many beautiful things and so much art and so much culture and, and so many, so the idea of like abandoning art, culture, technology isn't really what it's about, but there is this um, deeper context that our bodies need, crave, and that's that there is a place that they were built to actually be in connection with. And it might not be that physical place, but there's a relational place, um, almost a, a netting together of events of the community around me, of the um, types of sensory input coming to me, the way I'm using my body every day, um, what I'm eating, mm -hmm. um, just so so much of my entire like lived, felt, bodied experience was what made me human in the first place. And that's what we've kind of abandoned for some other things that, I don't know, are pretty cool. I just don't think they lead to the same kind of health, wellness, um, soul purpose type thing that our ancestry could. So if I'm hearing you right, you're not saying we necessarily have to leave culture altogether, physically, mentally, emotionally, but that we remember what we are and that we're animals and that we're a part of, that we are nature and, how, and to tend those lines of connection belonging and and ultimate and it seems like a big part of that is also healing instincts that have been so damaged by this captivity that 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 we do that that slow work of remembering ourselves back to our home all right our ancestral ecology and that this this is the, this is our our dream or our um, call or our need or our longing when we feel that offness in culture. 
Is that is that right? Yeah, I think so. In, in a lot of ways, I, I think that from from a feeling, that I, th- I think I'll break it down in a few ways. From like a feeling of wanting to like like feel healthy and whole, I actually think a lot of the enrichment stuff could really really work, right? Like the idea of mm-hmm. um, engaging in activities that bring us into our bodies, connect us with place, um, and bring us into the present. I think there's a lot of like health and wellness uh-huh. from that. But yeah. the idea that we can just, we're, we're all going to go become hunter-gatherers again. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I've never, met, I've never met an indigenous person saying, hey, all, all 7 billion of us, let's all go become hunter-gatherers. Yeah. There's, yeah. it's not about that. I think it's about yeah. a way of listening and being told by the land, developing the skills to, to feel and experience what, land and place actually wants from us and let it teach us how to live with it again so from mm-hmm. a personal individual organism standpoint i think yes connecting with our ancestral connections is a great way to feel whole as a person and those can be mimicked you know we, we can do them on the weekends if we wanted to mm-hmm. but to actually move towards something that we might call freedom we can't just like jump off the ship and all go run to the forest. There's just, there's less, there's not as much wild as you'd think there was, right? Even if we can't just open all the zoos and let go all the animals, because there actually isn't a wild left anymore in a lot of ways of what some of us might conceive of as wild. It's like a place untouched by humans. They're not, they're not there anymore. So it's about this way of, um, I mean, the, the way it, it's, it's the three, it's the steps that you'd use to heal in cultural, enculturated captivity that I think are actually what we would all do together. The steps to heal enculturated captivity. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say there's, there's three, there's three main things. Yeah. And, and I think any activity you're engaging in, you could hit the three. It's um, connecting to the present moment, the here and now, connecting to um, place, right? So not just, a forest, but this forest and this grove that I'm in and these trees that I'm surrounded by, right? This wind right here. Every place is different. Um, and then connecting with our senses. Yeah. If we if we have all those three things, like we're able to reconnect to this way of listening and being taught by the world. And I, I think that's why it's so important to like work with kids outside because you can actually cultivate a, a different um neurostructure like a different set of neuro pathways in the brain yeah right that's so much of what this enculturated captivity is, is as we grow up and we're shaped by the human symbols and, and the lack of time with the the ancestral context that like gave us our minds we actually end up with different neuro circuits than we would have otherwise um it's the same way that you know different types of parenting create different neural pathways as well. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's really about refining this way of listening. Um, it's called traditional ecological knowledge and a lot of um, native science and indigenous uh-huh. science. It's just this way of actually being able to be told by the land how to live with it, as opposed to us where we kind of, yeah. I, I say us, I mean, modern techno-industrial society yeah. that creates this abstract idea of how to live and then just, places that on everywhere without actually um, treating them as individuals of asking how. So there's, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. It's one, how do I heal myself enough so I'm not completely um, being destroyed by captivity? Um, and two, then once I'm like 
feeling all right enough or a baseline, how do I start to engage in activities that can help me cultivate this way of, of, of knowing, this way of feeling, this way of learning, and then bring that knowledge out to the world and start being taught by the world how to live with it again. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. I thank you for sharing those steps. I think that's really helpful and that those ideas of how to re- remember ourselves back to this moment, to this place. To in in archetypal psychology, one of the things I love about it is this movement, at least how I understand it from living in mastery and sort of the conquering heroic mentality and moving into meaningful participation it's part that's part of unloading that personal realm too right like I don't need to only work on my fear I need to also look at what's scary that I'm facing right that idea that we're in relationship with a dynamic reality and a living world and remembering ourselves back to that is such a, a beautiful call. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. It's it's hard to do. I, I think it's yeah. <laughs> there's 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 two games that I when I think about the two ways of living on the world, like ours and, and what could be. I, I actually I think of hopscotch and double dutch. These two like schoolyard games, like hopscotch is the box, the squares drawn on the pavement and uh-huh. jump through them. Double Dutch being the two spinning ropes and skipping rope through that. And, you know, there's one way of walking on the world that's, you know, happening upon a, a, a hilly, a sloped grove. And hopscotchers wanting to play hopscotch will level the trees, like cut all the trees down, level the ground, pave it paint human symbols on it and then spend the rest of the day participating with those human symbols. Uh-huh. Right. And then the double dutchers on the other side, walk up, look at the rope spinning, sense the rhythm. Wait, do I have the rhythm right? Get it really start to understand the flow and then move into it without creating disturbance. Right. And still within that flow, jumping can create more creativity, invite others into it, really show your ingenuity in it without without destroying that rhythm, without disrupting that rhythm. So it's which which way are we starting? Are we starting from yeah. a story in my head, which is, you know, using a past event to inform the now as a trauma response? Or am I able to, you know, bracket, heal that ex- those past experiences, move away from the abstract and move more into the sensory moment and really learn to, to see this rhythm? And I, I think those steps, those practices are really like what's, that's what we're trying to do is be able to see the rhythm again, because it's going to be different for every place. And for, for each of us, we're yeah. all going to see something a little different. Yeah. We do it together. The games there, what, bring, what that brings up for me is what are we participating in, which reminds me again of that enrichment therapy idea, which, you know, I'm so glad you brought up that some of them are really wonderful. We are not disparaging but to be asking and seeing through, what is this doing? What am I doing? What am I participating in? Um, is it the, which, which game, you know, which way of participation? I guess it's even teasing that out. Yeah. You mentioned a bit ago, there's not that much wild left. And I'm wondering if you can say, speak to what you 
call wild? What is wildness to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would love to. Thanks. Let me think about that for a second. Um, there's this dichotomy that this split that as I was researching, I came across like I, I'll do a thing where when I read books, I, I tag every word. Every time I see wild, I underline it and put it like a tag and then go find it later. And there was like, there's like a wild versus civilization is how I often see it kind of like used, mm-hmm. right? It's like civilized and wild. So if we go back to like Jungian writings or just like that era of psychology, um, you know, civilization, civilized, good, wild, bad, like this, the savage, primitive, um, underdeveloped, not quite there. Whereas civilized is like refined, um, organized, orderly. There's this, you know, civilization, good, wild, bad. And then over the last 30 years, you know, probably even more than that, like from, you know, the late sixties, the summer of love and all that. But uh, I would say I see more, more writings about wild, good and kind of civilized bad yeah. just to like to make it basic, but just this like wild is spontaneous, uh, free, natural, um, creative. And, um, on the other side, it's this over controlled, rigid, refined, sterile. These are just some of like the synonyms I, I see with it. So then you've got the same, dichotomy just flipped mm-hmm. right now wild civilization bad and there's one that i came across though that was completely different and it's it, I'm, and i've it's the one that i've stuck with and i just think it's so special and i, I got it from jeanette armstrong who's an okanagan scholar up here in canada and she tells this story um standing with her dad looking at new settlers come to the valley and they're they're chopping down trees and just kind of building what we might call like a little a little town, right? A little settlement. And he looks there and he says, "Those people are wild, right? Those people are in pain. They are dislocated, and they are mad, right? They they bring their dislocation wherever they go. The ungroundedness, right? Of not having place, of not being rooted into a place, of being told by place." who you are, right? Without being the people of a place, right? Almost every, um, well, shoot, I don't know if I've got that right. Many people, many, um, indigenous people's names for themselves are the people of this place. Mm -hmm. And looking at these settlers, they were not the people of a place. Mm -hmm. They were the people running from something or chasing something towards something, but they brought with them a wildness. They brought with them this abstract, ungrounded, unrootedness, and that really shifted things for me because when I look at it, nature is not like the natural world is not chaotic. It is not incoherent. It is not unorderly. It is so organized and it is so um, run by law. It is so coherent. If you ever want to like feel better, go tune yourself to a to to a natural system. It's coherent. You never look at a hurricane and go, that hurricane's neurotic, right? right? It, it just is. It's coherent. Um, but our world, another way to look at the bars for us is its abstractness. It's incoherence. It's just from someone's head. Like the reason that stop sign's there at the end of your street, even though it's on a hill, when stopping midway down a hill makes no <laughs> sense whatsoever, right? Is because it came from someone's head. 
It's all ungrounded, right? It comes from the world where two parallel lines can exist on a round planet, right? There's just this abstract thing that is unrooted and ungrounded and isn't actually um, connected to anything. And that wildness, um, as she speaks to it, is actually part of the cultural um, pathology or challenge we're dealing with. So for me, I've, I've come to say, instead of um, in the rewilding community that I've, I've connected with uh, on different projects, I often say I'm, I'm engaged in unwilding because mm-hmm. I'm trying to move towards what is it like to be as part of a coherent system. Like growing up in a, in a, it's just changing the word to mean chaotic, right? I guess so growing up in a chaotic or like a wild family in this sense, you have um, a chaotic or um, maladaptive psyche trying to tune to this thing, right? And if you, or, or a society as a whole that's wild and incoherent. So I, I know that that's not at all how you're using it. So I'm not suggesting that. I just, I, th- I want to complexify it. I just yeah. throw that in there that I just, I love this other way of thinking and the fact that it comes from um, an indigenous scholar, it feels like it just shakes up a lot of this back and forth that I've seen people connected in of either civilization, good and wild, bad, or wild, good and civilization, bad. It kind of flips it just a little bit. Yeah, so, thank you for I'd that. Throw that in the mix. So in that case, you're in some ways understanding the wild as separate from nature because you're saying wild is chaotic and nature is organized. So that's your you're understanding wildness as unnatural or not of nature. Is that right? Yeah, in a lot of ways. I, I would say that, well, one more thing on that. Kat Anderson's got a book called Tending the Wild. And in that one, everything that when Westerners are, um, I say Westerners, I guess when Europeans arrived, mm-hmm. everything they named wilderness was actually tended horticultural areas um, by indigenous peoples. Yeah. So like what, what our kind of base definition, at least in North America, of wilderness was wasn't those were those were places that were loved and cared for by humans so the idea that like wilderness is somewhere where humans are not that doesn't exist there and in the same yeah. book i can't remember which 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 group of indigenous people she's speaking of but their consideration is that that wilderness is a place that's unloved by humans a place that's been forgotten a place that's been abandoned um mm-hmm. and unloved mm-hmm. um so I, I don't know. I think there's something in yeah. that of looking at the different ways that different cultures um, treat wildness and coherence and incoherence. And um, as we start to come together and build a shared language and, and we all start rowing in the same direction, yeah. um, I think language for us is so important of yeah, getting clear on what we're talking about. That's right. So in this connection between what I hear you saying is between wild and incoherence, abstraction, chaos, it really challenges our um, it challenges us to to see how we're seeing, to to notice what we're calling uh, uh, coherent or we're calling incoherent that can be so privileging our one perspective, right? To, that in fact we what are we saying is wild 
And what does that say about our perspective and our, our own uh, position, our own privilege, our own worldview, right? Um, yeah. I, I, if, we're, if we're trapped in a cage and we're calling, we, we, there's a yearning for what's wild because what we're in takes on the characteristics of that sterility, of that banality. Yeah. And we reach outwards towards this other thing when in so many ways it's, it is our natural inheritance. Um, anyways, back to you. Yeah, I, I think of wild as wild and domestication as the two. And that, you know, to be wild is, is to ask which laws do I follow? Right, because uh, if you look at a wild animal, which I consider our example of what it means to be wild, because in many ways, like you pointed out, we don't know anymore, right? What does that even mean? And the a wild animal follows so many laws, so that's not a it's not about that, but but they follow the laws of their nature, right? If it's a cheetah, it follows yeah. that law, and if that. it's and to to me, I th that's how I think of wildness for us is versus domestication is domestication is to follow the rules of another. That's how I sort of tell me if I'm if I'm understanding your work correctly, but that the domestication is following the laws of the cage, the 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 status quo, the norms, the ways of living that are making me sick or captive. And that's domestication. And to be wild and, and to live by that law, or like you said, rules, actually, to, to be wild then would, to me is to live by the law of my nature and to know that I can do many civilized things in a wild way. It's not about that. It's where am I living from? And what am I, rather than what activities do I do in a day, you know, with we could nuance that out, but that, that I don't have to, it's not between choosing civilization or choosing the wild. Cause then we get into paradigms of obedience, like just give me the paradigm and I'll follow all the rules. But to say, how do I cultivate a way of being that's in touch with my inner law, with nature, with remembering myself as part of the greater nature, as part of, like you said, so beautifully, the earth community. And how do I live from that place rather than from, the the rules of domestication and follow those rules more blindly even if they make me ill but that I can do civilized things in a wild way um, and I can do civilized things in a domesticated way and that's brings us back to that like we are the knower of our own lives right and how we're living but yeah the, do you have any thoughts about that that's kind of how I think of it um I, I love that just like having like checking in of like am I following laws or am I following rules? Yeah. Like I I just love that because if, if I'm following laws, we're talking huh. about gravity, yeah. aerodynamics, ecological laws, and like that's where I keep coming back to the idea of if you have a healthy ecology and you're actually living in a way that's making everything around you more vital, you're following laws. If you're following rules, no, you're probably going to end up. Rules are just made up by people. They're not. They're yeah. not really yeah. things. The one thing I would I would challenge is that yeah. um, the domestication bit. I I stick with captivity uh -huh. versus whatever is on the other side. If we want to call it wildness uh -huh. versus um, versus domestication, because if I, you know, if I I believe that 
humans still have everything in them to be remembered back into the earth. Uh-huh. And in many ways, something that's been domesticated is actually a different species and no uh-huh. longer has that ability. Uh-huh. Like um, greyhounds are a domesticated dog, but if we release them all into the wild, like um, no more humans. Now the greyhounds are just out there. They've actually been domesticated and bred to now compete with each other. So they can't actually work together and they'd all go extinct very quickly. Got it. Yeah. Or bull terriers are all born cesarean section now, right? So another domestic animal that can't exist without humans anymore. I think wow. that we are actually yeah. um, still destined and still built for the world outside of this cage. So that's that's okay. the one where I just um, pick captivity as a phrase over domestication. But I think the way you're laying it out makes so much sense. And yeah. laws versus rules, I think, is just such a cool thing that you just pointed out. Wonderful. So what do you call the light life outside captivity? Anything? I, I guess I think I, at this point I'm just calling it, I think, coherence. I uh-huh. think it's... I think ecological coherence might be what I what I call it at this point. But um, yeah, I think the I think traditional ecological uh, uh, like regenerative culture, traditional ecological knowledge, and coherence are kind of the buzzwords that I'm sticking with right now. I, I really love this regenerative culture as a term because it names what we're doing as degenerative culture, and it also kind of takes us away from this. Um, the fallacy of sustainability, mm-hmm. right? Where sustainability is being less degenerative, right? But what we're actually trying to do, I, I, or what I would love us to be trying to do, <laughs> I think many people that are engaged, engaged in sustainability are trying to do is live regeneratively, right? Where we are mutually enhancing members of the earth, of uh, the biosphere or the earth community, where by our actions, the land is more fertile. Um, there's more biodiversity. Species are thriving, um, we are healing things that have been injured instead of creating injury ourselves, yeah. right? We are generating health and sanity instead of um, perpetuating and exacerbating um, illness and trauma and pain. So I, I think that regenerative culture is what I would say is on the other side of that. And I'd say I couldn't, we can't build it without it being informed by traditional ecological knowledge. Yeah. And the more we try to do it without turning um, to indigenous peoples that actually still have a historical connection to how to live um, without <laughs> without going extinct. Um, mm. I, I think we, we can't we can't not honor that knowledge and try to do it without like like things like permaculture, super cool, love them. They give you principles on how to largely create regenerative culture and live in a way that's perpetual and doesn't cause harm and. I think not not recognizing that that stands on the shoulders of traditional ecological knowledge um, just isn't right. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So, you know, you talked about the three steps, which again, to reiterate here, uh, being in the present moment, being connected to place. What was the third one? Uh, connecting to our senses, our bodies. Connecting to our bodies. So we can find these ways in each day. Um, ask ourselves these questions. Ask ourselves, what laws or rules am I living from? Um, and do you have, and for our listeners, they're thinking, yes, yes to this, the regenerative culture, to, 
to waking up to our captivity, to making different sacrifices. Because right? that always plays into it, right? When we want to choose a different way, we're going to make different sacrifices than we're making now. Um, do you have any other ways that you are staying, doing this work now or that you would suggest other places for our listeners to begin today this work of, of becoming not captive of regenerative culture of, of wild? Yeah, yeah. I think I think just to bring it back a second before we get we go into that, I I think I'd love to just quickly just pull apart the zoocosis and culturated captivity bit because that'll make I think make that more make that more sense make that make that make more sense. So zoocosis, I don't. I, I think it's a cool buzzword, but I don't use it. I, I came up with enculturated captivity because. I don't like the divide between humans and animals mm -hmm. and every illness, whether it's mental or medical that exists in non-human animals also exists in humans. We mm -hmm. just name them differently. Mm -hmm. So if you look at a veterinary textbook and a medical textbook, we're still describing the same illnesses. We just name them differently. Huh. So zoocosis, the idea of a human zoocosis, there's already a name for it, right? And it's complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So mm -hmm. I, just, I just kind of want the listeners to get that, that, what enculturated captivity is creating is a collective intergenerational form of developmental trauma of complex post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And the main things that that takes away from you are your ability to be in the here and now. It has you living back in past events and the inability to, to attune fully to our senses, hmm. right? So when I say the three, the, the steps that we need to take are to find our way back to the present, back to place and back to our bodies it is largely in response to handling a um, collective form of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So in, in any sort of like, I want to start working with this, what do I do? I think any somatic psychotherapies, anything yeah. in the um, somatic experiencing world or um, TRE that can connect you with the body and offer some trauma release, uh, I think those are actually just important for all of us to do because what we're dealing with collectively, the bars are essentially um, a form of trauma. Hmm. And in terms of a, a lighter, more like lifestyle fun things that we can do, um, I think permaculture is really cool to study if you like gardening. Again, it'll have you listening to land, using your body, connecting to the, like the place. Um, if you're looking for a movement modality, there's something called MoveNet, um, M-O-V-N-A-T which takes the idea of our bodies being shaped by um, evolutionary time to move through the world in an adaptable way. And it teaches us as a form of uh, fitness or a movement modality to move through the world in this, again, this adaptive, connective, responsive way. Um, for me, my favorite has always been wilderness skills or mm. uh, deep nature connection mm -hmm. or um, nature awareness skills, which you can find all over the internet, there's someone in most communities teaching something like that. I just, I've never, I never feel more alive than when I'm connected in those games. I can feel my body, I'm completely here. I'm mm -hmm. learning about place from place itself. Those are just some of the most, um, most fun moments for me, I think, are in mm -hmm. those activities. And, and I'll be launching some new ones in the, uh, I don't think it'll be this year, but probably in the new year, once the snow melts up here in Montreal, I'll be kicking off a bunch of uh, nature awareness and 
deep connective practices. Wonderful. And we'll make sure to post your link to your website and all of that in our show notes so people can find more about your writing and your work and your offerings. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really grateful for your presence here and sharing your research and your and your insights here for our community. I'm sure all of us are. um, I'm not going to say enriched. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, I I really, really value um, your work and your insights here. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. It was was really fun. Thanks for having me. It was great. so much for listening and for being here. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, please take a few seconds to give us a five-star rating and write a little review and even share it with a friend. This helps us build our community here and means a lot to me. Also, as a reminder, if you're interested in the apprenticeship certificate course for 2024, please go to the show notes and schedule a call with me. I would love to talk about it with you. And I'll see you here next time.